Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, November 10th, 2017. We're going to finish up Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley's lectures, sermons on the solas of the Reformation. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down. Stop. Open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, so we take the time to open up God's Word, to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we should be buying instead of the Word of God. And over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine is far far, far, far from what God's Word really says. And as a result of it, we expose that a lot of people are being deceived terribly. Now, part of the way in which you learn how to identify false doctrine and Bible twisting as opposed to sound exegesis is you you familiarize yourself with those pastors who uh, apply themselves to the craft of exegesis of rightly dividing the word of truth between law and gospel. They proclaim sin and grace, repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and they placard Christ alone as the, as the solution given by God, the singular solution given by God for the predicament that we find ourselves in, and that is, is that we are all in sin, and we have earned the wrath of God, and in order to be saved, we need a Savior. That's kind of the idea, and so they find ways by rightly handling God's Word, pulling all Scripture back to Christ. So with that, let's uh, let's head into our lessons today. We're going to hear Pastor Charmley wrap up his, uh, his sermons on the solas of the Reformation. We're going to hear his sermon on Christ alone, and then the final one, to the glory of God alone. So we'll put a break in between the two of them, but here's Pastor Charmley and his sermon on Christ alone. Here we go. Our scripture reading this evening is found in the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts, chapter 4. 
while the common title given to this book is the Acts of the Apostles, it would be more accurate to say it is the Acts of the risen and ascended Christ through his apostles by the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 3, we read of how it was that God, through the apostles, Christ through the apostles, gave a crippled man strength to walk, and how it was that Peter and John preached the gospel in the temple. So Acts chapter 4. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people, and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about five thousand. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. When they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you, to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. When they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them, because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over forty years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. And being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, 
You are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and the people of Israel, Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each, as everyone had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated, son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, Having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And may God bless the reading of his holy word. Our text this evening is found in the chapter that we read, Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that name, of course, is the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Verse 10. We are in our fourth sermon in this series on the five solas of the Reformation. Those five Reformation slogans. Those slogans of scripture alone. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, that sum up the message of the Protestant Reformation. And we have come to that great word, Christ alone, Christ alone. And the meaning of Christ alone is very simple. It is that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is the only saviour and he saves alone. Jesus saves and Jesus alone saves. And there are these three vital points here. First of all, that Jesus Christ saves. Secondly, that Jesus Christ is the only saviour. And thirdly, that he does his saving work alone. That is to say, the reality of salvation in Christ, the necessity of Christ, and the sufficiency of Christ. 
So first of all, we have this great point of the reality of Christ. Jesus saves. The Gospels confront us with a person, a person who is Jesus of Nazareth. If somebody asked you who wrote the largest amount of the New Testament, you'd probably think the answer is Paul. It's not. It's Luke. Because Acts and Luke's Gospel together are longer than all the epistles of Paul put together. And it's therefore telling that the largest single Work because it really is book one, book two, in the New Testament is a history. And it's all about this man, Jesus. It's about what he began to do and to teach. That's volume one. That's what Luke tells us in Acts 1. He says that the former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. And then volume two, the book of Acts is all that Jesus is what Jesus went on to do and to teach but he's still doing and teaching through the church and it's about a man a real man we saw in our reading how it is it was that Peter and John confronted the leaders of the people the leading priests the rulers and elders it's an amazing thing really They're, they were the ones on trial Peter and John but they were the ones who were doing the confronting who were bringing the charge they said let it be known to you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth who was cru- whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by him this man stands here before you hold this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. They bring this word, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified. They were certainly, well it takes a man, verse 8, filled with the Holy Spirit to say that when you've been arrested, to say to the people who arrested you, I charge you, with wrongdoing. You crucified the Messiah. Because that is at the centre of Christianity, the message that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, that Jesus is the Messiah, that the one who was promised in the Jewish scriptures has come in the person of Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, who was raised in Nazareth, who was crucified outside of Jerusalem and has risen again from the dead. The message of Christianity is absolutely centered on the person and the work of Jesus. Spurgeon said on one occasion, C.H. Spurgeon, the great Victorian Baptist preacher, he said, Preacher, if your sermon has nothing of Jesus in it, Come down and never preach again until you can mention him. Because the message of the Christian church is all about Jesus. If you can go into a church meeting, a church service, and you never hear Jesus mentioned, there's something horribly wrong. 
But on the other hand, if something is right, you will hear Jesus mentioned. Not just in vague ways, not just a sort of vague figure, but you will hear the Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus of history, who is also the Jesus of the church's faith, brought up, mentioned, this man. Soon enough, Christmas will be on us and we will be remembering the birth of Jesus. That last hymn, the, the, the tune we all know it, of course, as once in Royal David City, but we sang yeah, that other hymn to the same tune. But we sing these hymns, we remember the birth of Jesus because he is a real man. We sang that hymn this morning of Mr. Hart's, a man there is, a real man. And it's absolutely central, absolutely vital. It doesn't matter to the Buddhist whether the Buddha really lived or not. The stories about him are what's central. But it's absolutely vital that Jesus lived, that Jesus was. That's why so much effort is put in by atheists and unbelievers to try to undermine the history of Jesus That's why you find the Gospels attacked from every side. That's why you find the most ridiculous ideas selling books and making people like Dan Brown millionaires. Because people want to think that Jesus wasn't the Jesus of history. The Jesus... In whom we believe, but he's a real man, not a myth, not a symbol, not an ideal, but a man, fully man. And we must always remember the reality of the humanity of Christ. Christ, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, was born of Mary in Bethlehem. He was born, it was an ordinary, normal birth. Because he's a man, a real man. But he's also God with us. In him, the apostle says, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Everything that makes God, God, is in the man Christ Jesus. Because he is fully and wholly and completely God with us. He is God made manifest in the flesh. God who reveals himself in him. God was born. Which is a marvelous mystery that floors us to think the the eternal God in one sense began to be. That is he began to be a man. He always was as God, but he became man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is God with us, God incarnate. He is Jesus, a man. It's a human name, a name that was given on the eighth day. A name that was given him when he was formally brought into the covenant of Israel. A man, a real man. 
Jesus. Jesus the Savior. He saves. And his salvation is why he came. That he might be a Savior. Nor is there salvation in any other. And that salvation is a salvation from sin for God. There's the negative and the positive we are saved from, that we may be saved to. Saved from sin, saved for God. Saved from wrath, saved for glory. That is what Jesus does. He delivers us from our sins. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And he brings us to God. He died once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And he does his saving work by his death, by the cross, the atonement of his blood. He does it by taking our sins and bearing them himself. Christ died for our sins. He died in the place of all his people. He bore the full penalty of the Lord of God that we have broken. That we might have eternal life in him. He saves by the cross. And that's why we marvel, we glory in the cross. That's why the the central act of Christian worship is the Lord's Supper, whereby we remember his death until he comes again. Martin Lloyd-Jones noted that the communion table should always be in agreement with the pulpit. If the pulpit disagrees with the communion table, then something is wrong in the pulpit. The communion table says Christ died for our sins. The pulpit has to say the same. The communion table says we are saved by his death. The pulpit has to say the same. We have to remember Christ died for our sins. The just for the unjust to bring us to God. So Jesus saves. That's our first point. Jesus saves. The reality of Jesus. He has finished the work. And the resurrection is the great declaration. He's done it. If he had not been God manifest in the flesh. And if he had not paid the full penalty for sin. He would never have risen from the dead. But on the third day he was gloriously and wonderfully alive. He wasn't alive like somebody who just about managed to survive being crucified. He was alive, more alive, we might say, than he'd ever been before. Because he had been raised from the dead, never more to die. And so there is the reality of Christ and his work. Jesus saves. Secondly, the necessity of his work and person. Christ is the only saviour. 
Jesus is the only Saviour. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. And that's a claim that is, to many people today, very offensive. They're quite willing to say, Jesus is a great teacher. They're quite willing to say, Jesus is a a good man. They're quite willing to say, well, he might be a way to God, but you can't say he's the way to God. You get in all kinds of trouble for doing that. But he is the way. There is no other way. There was none other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Jesus only. He's the only saviour there is. And that means that it doesn't matter how sincere the Sikh, the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Muslim, the Jehovah's Witness is. They cannot be saved. The great issue at the Reformation was the sufficiency of Christ. The great issue for us today in a a pluralist culture is the necessity of Christ. There were those even then who said that as long as a person did their best and walked according to the light they had, then they'd be saved. Well, the problem with that, of course, is that means you're saved, they're saved by works. But the Bible's very clear. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Could you put it any more clearly than that? He doesn't say there's only one name given for Jewish people to be saved. You can't say that today because people think it's anti-Semitic, even though Jesus was a Jew, even though the people here speaking are Jews. Everybody in this scene, in this chapter, is a Jew. But he didn't say it was only for Jewish people. He didn't say it's only for white people or European people. He said, under heaven, men, human beings, there is no salvation in any other. Nobody else. That's the great conviction that drives missionary work is the, this conviction that Jesus is not just the best, he's the only, he's the only saviour, he's not just the best way to God he's the only way to God and why is that? Because he's the only God incarnate, he's the only God man that there ever was is or shall be Because there's only one God. If there were God's many and Lord's many in reality, then it might make some sense that each God would have their own way of salvation. But there's only one God. And therefore there's only one way of salvation. There's only one incarnate God. There are many prophets. We find their writings in the Old Testament. There were many other prophets who didn't write, but we read about them in the historical books, men like Elijah and Elisha, who proclaimed the word of the Lord. But each of them said, thus says the Lord, but Jesus says, 
I say to you. They said, look unto God, Jesus said, look to me. They said, come to God, Jesus said, come unto me. Because Jesus is God incarnate. Therefore, he's the only saviour. Because he's the only one, he's the fullest revelation of God that is possible. Because he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Because no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. We can only know God in Jesus through Jesus. Again, he is the only sacrifice for sins. There's no other sacrifice. There is no other lamb. There is no other name. There is only him. He's the only one who has given his life for the sins of the world. Behold the lamb of God. Said John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nobody else takes away sin. Nobody else can deal with our sin. There's nothing else that can take it away. There's no other blood that can cleanse us. Only Jesus. There's no other mediator. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's no other mediator. There's nobody else who is able to bring us to God. Nobody else who represents God to man and men to God. No other go-between but the Lord Jesus himself. And you see, this is why all this pluralism nonsense doesn't work. Because what it says is it says, well, we have to make Christianity like every other religion. And so they have to say that Jesus is not God. That he is just a man. But he is God. He is God over all. You cannot take the man revealed in the scriptures and say, well, he was just a good man. C.S. Lewis was quite right when he said he's either the Lord of glory, the greatest liar the world's ever known, or a raving lunatic. But you look at Jesus, no man was ever more sane in his words. No man was ever more honest and open in his words. And thus he must be the Lord of glory, that he truly is. He is Lord he is God with us. And so his revelation of himself makes us fall down and worship at his feet. Pluralism presents a made up, a fictional Jesus. But the Jesus of history, the Jesus of reality comes to us. And he is far greater than any fiction that man can produce. He is no mere prophet. He is God with us. God for us. We cannot lower Christianity to the position of all the world's religions. It is so much higher. And indeed, if you try the pluralism nonsense, you've got to effectively say, and they like to say, well, we believe all religions are equally true, by which they mean that they're all equally false, because they all make conflicting claims. 
Buddhism and Christianity are totally different. There are a few, yes, superficial similarities, but right at the core, everything is different. Jesus Christ is unique and universal. There is one God and one mediator, the man, Christ Jesus. The necessity of Christ, nobody is saved without this name. But whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's why people need to hear the gospel, to hear the good news about Jesus And thirdly, the sufficiency of Christ. Jesus saves alone. He doesn't need anybody's help. The great issue at the Reformation here was this. It was, are we saved by Jesus plus or Jesus only? And it's this matter, the technical term is synergism. Who is working? Is it one work, the work of Christ, or two works, Christ's work and my work, working together? And so often the message that people give is, well, it's, well, it's like the Mormon. The Mormon says we're saved by grace after all that we can do. We do our best. God does the rest. That's not the gospel. That's heresy. That's false teaching. The truth is, as the the man Spurgeon tells the story of a man who was interviewed for church membership, and the church was a church that was very, very strict. You had to be able to dot all your theological I's and cross all your T's to be a member of the church. And this man was a simple, ordinary working man, not much of intellectual. And so they grilled him in the membership interview. And the elders said to him, well now, what was your part in your salvation what was Christ? Oh well, he said, you see, my salvation, I did my bit and God did his. We've got him now, they said. Explain, said one of the elders. Oh, it's like this, he said. I did everything I could to resist and Christ saved me anyway. That's salvation. What we do, what we bring is our sin, our guilt, our rebellion. And what Christ brings is his irresistible grace. The grace that breaks the heart. And the Holy Spirit who transforms us that we are born again to see the kingdom of heaven and enter into it. Every form of synergism, whether it's an extreme form which is basically... Christ helps me to save myself or a moderate form is I help Christ to save me always it makes man the deciding factor so you have this idea that well God has given everybody sufficient grace to be saved well then um, if it's sufficient why isn't everybody saved it's not sufficient you see in that scheme The reality is that all that the Father gives to me, Jesus says, shall come to me. He also says, no one can come to me except the Father who has sent me draws him. And everyone who comes to the Son shall be raised up on the last day. Because Jesus Christ saves to the uttermost. He's not a potential saviour for everybody. 
He's an actual saviour for everyone who believes. He saves everybody who comes to him. And the deciding factor isn't whether I'm smart enough to recognise my need or whether I'm capable enough to put my free will into action. But it is that Christ saves, that Jesus delivers, that he saves on his own. There's a sense in which we can say that, Christian can say, I was saved outside Jerusalem the best part of 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on the cross. And how many people were on that cross? Only Jesus. He trod the wine press alone, he says. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he alone cried out, it is finished. He did the work. That full saving work he did on his own. Who died for your sins? He did. Nobody else. Was Paul crucified for you? Says the apostle. Certainly not. Certainly not. Jesus alone was crucified. Jesus alone was raised from the dead. He did the work. And we must look at our salvation and say it's all Jesus' work. Not just the dying on the cross, but the application of it too. Because he is the mediator. He is the great high priest. He is the advocate for his people. And he is the one who in heaven pleads his people's cause, showing his wounds Bringing his own self. He is the one who presents our prayers to the Father. He is the one who began the work, who will complete the good work. And it's all his work. So that the Christian cannot look, we can't say, well, this bit of my salvation is a little bit that's mine. It's all his. It's all about Jesus Christ alone. And therefore, we have this sure, this great assurance that we can say, Therefore, I am secure because Jesus is the one who is doing this. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He is the one who can say that no one can pluck my people out of my hand. He is the one who can say, I will raise you up on the last day. And therefore we have assurance and joy if we know him. Because we know that it's not up to us. It's not a matter of we can somehow, someday forfeit our salvation by what we do. But that he will save because he is able and he does save unto the uttermost all those who come to God by him. So Jesus Christ is the only saviour and he saves alone. He is a real, a real man who really did the things that are written of him. 
who really now is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, who is really in heaven and who really will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. He is a real saviour. He is the necessary saviour. There's no one else who can say there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he is a sufficient saviour. He does the saving on his own. He has died. Christ alone. Christ only. Christ alone. Amen. Amen. See, see, see the difference between the stuff we cover week to week and what we just heard? Mm-hmm. Just saying. All right. We're going to uh, – well, we can't pause. We're going to start our next and final one after the break. So if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook – Facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. We come back. The final sermon in the Solas of the Reformation series by Pastor Charmley. To the glory of God alone. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No visions are cast here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. <laughs> You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents... Church Day Select. I do wish these planes would give us passengers more legroom. Hey, let me help you with your luggage. Oh, thank you so much. What in the world do you have in these bags? Bricks. Bricks? I'm a door-to-door brick salesperson. I'm not even going to ask. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fastened seatbelt sign. If you have not already done so, please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelt and make sure your seat back and Tray tables are in their full, upright, and locked positions. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. In case y'all don't know me, I'm Mark Driscoll, and I'm going to be your pilot for today. Oh, dear. He looks more like a terrorist, if you ask me. If any of you passengers feel at any time that you could pilot this plane better than me, then you'll be swiftly thrown under the bus. I mean plane. As you may have noticed, there are also no parachutes on this flight. Which means, should you be thrown off the plane, that your landing will be unpleasant. We thank you for flying Mars Hill Air with us today. I guess it's time to take off, then. Well, let's just hope our flight to Boston will be nice and easy.
seriously wrong with all of this. Uh, this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. It is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we are about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilots. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, Our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. (laughs) To err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda 
and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, if you think that your salvation is a combination of you and Jesus working together in order to save you, you deny Christ alone. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world, and you can partner with us. It is a partnership Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. Rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey, $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the final installment. This is kind of the Reformed portion uh, teaching on this and the solas. But uh, the f- a final installment by Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley on the solas of the uh, of the Reformation, the final one, to the glory of God alone. Here we go. Our scripture reading this evening is found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Paul writes here to Christians in modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. Of course, the people weren't Turks then. They were what we would think of as Greeks. And he writes to this city that is dominated by the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. A temple given over, of course, to idolatry. But in this city... Where there is this idol temple, there is a temple of the Lord, not a building made with hands, but a building made of living stones, believers. And to them, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And may God bless the reading of his holy and precious word. Our text this evening is found in the chapter that we read, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. We've been looking in this series at these five slogans of the Reformation, the five solas as they're known, five alone statements that we are saved, that first of all God reveals himself in Scripture alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, and finally, then of course, Christ alone, and finally, to the glory of God alone. I'll get there eventually. To the glory of God alone. And all of these statements need a certain amount of unpacking. Like any slogan, we have to understand what is meant. And when we say, to the glory of God alone, we mean 
what Paul says here, that the end of our salvation, the goal of our salvation, is the glory of God. And this is simply because the end, the aim of all God's works is his own glory, that God glorifies himself. Well, we first have to ask, what does it mean to speak of God's glory? Secondly, why is it that this is the goal? And thirdly, to seek the grace of God that we may glorify him. So our three points this evening are first of all the glory of God, secondly the goal of our salvation, and thirdly the grace so to live. First of all, glory. What does it mean to speak of the glory of God? And we can use the term in two related ways. First of all, to speak of the glory God has in himself. And secondly, to speak of God's glory being made known. First of all then, God is glorious in himself. His person, his character, he is glorious. He is majestic. He is wonderful. The Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 17, prayed that the Father would glorify him. And he says, verse 5, Now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. God is glorious. And what does that glory consist in? Well, it consists in who he is. His power his wisdom, his justice, his holiness, his goodness. God is glorious. He is majestic. And his majesty is in himself. It's not like a human king. A human king is a man. And that majesty, that glory, it's all things that are around him. Stories are told of men going to see great kings and they see a man covered in gold and jewels, dripping with gold and yet within all that is a, a withered, shriveled old man like to die. Because the glory of a human being, in that sense, the majesty, is something that's outside of him. It's not something that's inside. It's not part of his very nature in that sense. But God's majesty is who he is. You can't separate God from his majesty. If you've been following the news in this past week, you've been following what's been happening in Zimbabwe and how Robert Mugabe has been stripped of much of his majesty, his power. As far as I know, and things may have changed since I last saw the news, they're changing so fast, Mugabe is still the president in name of Zimbabwe. 
But he has no control over anything. He has to do whatever the generals tell him to do because they're the ones with the tanks, they're the ones with the guns. He has no majesty. He had majesty, but it's all been taken away and he's left with just the name. But you cannot do that with God because God's majesty is part of who he is. Again, God's wisdom is part of who he is. It's intrinsic to him. We have to learn wisdom as human beings, and some of us are better at it than others. We have to learn wisdom, and people can lose wisdom. There are those who have been, have been wise who have lost it. There are those who look at Again, to go back to current affairs, Mugabe, and say, well, he was a wise leader once. What happened? But God's wisdom is part of who he is. God's holiness is part of who he is. And all of these things he has in absolute perfection. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his glory, cry the heavenly creatures. Holy, 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 altogether perfectly, gloriously holy. We speak of God as the Almighty. He speaks of himself as the Almighty. That is the one to whom all power belongs. And again, this is intrinsic to him. It's who he is. When we speak of the attributes of God, to use a technical term, we are speaking of who God is in himself. We're not speaking about things that can be added to him. He is these things. And he's all of them. And he's glorious. Because he possesses all these things in absolute perfection. So who God is, is glorious. But secondly, we speak of God being glorified in the display of those attributes. The beginning of our service, we read those words from the psalmist, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but to your name give glory. And of course the name in scripture isn't like names for us. Names for human beings are labels. Certainly in our culture, names are labels. But we look at the Bible and we see in the biblical world, names are more than just labels. They express the essence of a person. I was listening this afternoon to a sermon on King David. And King David's relationship with the concept of revenge. One of the men who comes up there is a man called Nabal or Nabal, however you were taught to pronounce it. And his name means fool. And you immediately realize that it's not going to be the name that his parents gave him. I mean, what sort of a, a mother or father decides, I'm going to call my son idiot. You don't do it. It's a name that the people round about attached to him. They saw his behavior 
and they said, the name that fits this man is fool. God's name is who God is, just as Nabal's name is was who Nabal was. God's name is who God is. It expresses, it means his person. So when we talk about the name of God being glorified, we mean God being glorified in who he is. When we speak about God's name being glorified, we don't mean that God gains glory because all glory is already. We mean that he is shown to be glorious, that God is displayed to be what he is. So God is glorified in having his glory shown. And his glory has all these many aspects to it. It's like a diamond with all the facets that gleam and sparkle and glitter. And the diamond's glory is seen in the facets. God's glory is seen when his character is displayed. And all God's works reveal this. The heavens declare the glory of God. You go out, yes, even in the city, you look up at the sky at night and you see the stars. Maybe you saw earlier today the the sunset, the, the clouds lit up red, and how beautiful it is. The heavens declare the glory of God. We look and we see this time of year that the leaves are going marvellous colours, some of them. Glorious glowing reds. The glory of God is seen in everything that he has made. In everything that he does, in all his mighty works. Amazing wisdom shines. That's what God does. He is glorious. And so everything he does shows that glory. Creation shows his power and his wisdom. Redemption shows his love and his mercy and his justice. In salvation he shows he is merciful. In damnation, he shows that he is just. And everything that God does, is his works are, to use an old-fashioned term, they're manifold, they're multicoloured. They shine with all manner of colours, so we see that the full spectrum of God's glory in all that he does, taken as a whole. And to show his glory is what everything God does is about. His works are not one-dimensional because he's not one-dimensional. His works are many and varied. And indeed, as Dr. Watts put in the original of his hymn, it's a surprising wisdom we see. In the many works of God, the many mighty works. God, for God to be glorified means for his glory to be made known, for him to be made known. 
So secondly then, the goal of all things, especially our salvation, is God's own glory. Now there are those who at this point raise an objection. They say, well, if God's aim in everything he does is his own glory, doesn't that make God an egomaniac? Now what do we think of a man? Everything he does is to show how great he is. Well, we tend to think of a man who works that way as not a very nice man, and he's not. But you see, God is not a man. God is not a man. He, that is to say, God is not on the level that we are. We are on the level of the creature. And God is infinitely higher on the level of the creator. And the idea that somehow it would be unworthy for God to seek in everything his own glory is people trying to drag God down to their level. But also to lift themselves up above him. Because that's what happens if you try to drag down who God is. You exalt man at the same time. But you see, it's absolutely necessary that the goal of anything is worthy of that thing or that person. That the, the goal to which an effort, to which a person seeks, must be a goal that's worthy of that person. What do we think if a man creates this gigantic machine with all these working parts, you think of perhaps of, don't know if we're all familiar with the artist Heath Robinson. Heath Robinson is a, is a 20th century British artist who excelled in drawing pictures of the most absurd machines. They'd be these enormous great things with flywheels and belts and cogs and this and that and the other thing. These vast machines, the aim of which might be to lift a single pea from the plate and put it into the mouth of a person eating it. And of course the humour with Heath Robinson's art is this that the aim of these great machines is completely ridiculous. Because you're building these huge, elaborate machines to do something that you can do really easily with something that doesn't occupy anything like that amount of space. They're funny because they're ridiculous. Because the goal for which this enormous mechanism is created is totally unworthy of the mechanism. We know that a machine should have as its aim something worthy of that complicated mechanism. We know a human being should have as their goal something that is worthy of a man. Is worthy of a human being. That's why for a, a human being, a man to set his entire goal on making money is quite rightly understood by Christians as 
absurd, unworthy because God made us for himself. A goal that is worthy, that is greater than us. Not less than us. A block of gold just sits there. It does nothing. It cannot reproduce. It cannot change. It just sits there. Is that a worthy goal for a man to have? A block of gold? No. God is the great goal for which we were made. But you see, there's nothing higher than God. So if God were to seek as his ultimate goal in anything, anything other than his own glory, he'd be seeking something less than his own glory. And he would be demeaning himself. God's glory is that for which the whole universe exists because he is the highest being. And there is none greater than him. So he cannot seek less than his own glory. And there is nothing more. God is not a man. There is nothing greater than God. And so God can only seek his own glory. To show who he is that is. Because there is nothing higher. And nothing more worthy. God is absolutely unique. There is no other He is God and there is no other. And so that is the goal of everything. And it's the goal of salvation. You see what Paul says in our text. That we are predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of the glory of his grace. That's the aim of salvation. That God should be glorified. In his grace in those who are saved. It's also that the glory of God in his justice is the aim of damnation. That God may be known to be just. But in salvation he is known to be both just and because of the cross. He's just and he's a justifier of the one who believes upon Jesus In salvation then God is glorified because salvation is God's work from beginning to end. There's nothing in it that reflects glory on us. But it's all about God. And the believer, the Christian, says, yes, it is all about you, Lord. And what is my being but for you. That we don't look to ourselves and say, well, I can get some credit somewhere, but it's all for his glory. It's all that God may be known to be glorious in his grace, in his mercy. The aim of salvation is that God be glorified because that's the aim of everything God does. And so we come then to the grace to accept this, the grace to understand this, the application of this great point that the aim of God in everything he does is his own glory. 
And the first point is that we have to remember what the end, the goal of our salvation is not. It's not our glory. It's not our comfort here and now. Perhaps the most prevalent false teaching in the world today is something that is called the health and wealth prosperity teaching. And this can be summarized as this, that God's great goal is to make you healthy and wealthy and happy. That God wants you to be comfortable. Now the, the, the crass version of that is a sort you can find all over the internet, that you can find proclaimed in so-called churches all over the world that God wants you to have a Rolls Royce and be a millionaire. And again, I wish I was making that up. I wish that was a, a caricature. It's not. There are people actually saying exactly that. And we would all recognise that immediately, I hope, that that's a heresy. It's a lie. God has never said that. But there's a a more subtle version that's very common in the West and in the rest of the world too, which is that God wants you to have a, a comfortable, happy, healthy life. And if you're not comfortable, comfortably off, doing well, if your health is suffering um, or you're not happy and happy all the time, then it's your fault. You've messed up. Your Christianity is wrong. The Bible, on the other hand, says that this is a faithful saying that all those who wish, desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, it wasn't the man living a comfortable life who went to heaven. It was the man who was living a miserable, wretched existence as a beggar who was carried to Abraham's bosom. God has never said to anyone, if you follow me, you'll be healthy, wealthy and happy all the time. Look at the book of Job. Job's friends believed in the prosperity teaching. They said to Job, look, you're suffering. We know suffering is the result of sin. So repent and everything will be alright. And Job said, but what have I done to deserve this? Well, of course, we know that what Job had done to get this, not to deserve it, but to get it, was trusted God, loved God, and sought God with all his heart. The point that the devil said, well, he does it for the money, you know. And God said, no, he doesn't. And I'll let you prove it. Our sufferings can glorify God. And that's a comfortable teaching if we understand it. Because it means that if we're suffering, we don't automatically have to say, well, look, the reason, well, what, what have I done wrong? What sin have I committed? We don't say, oh, help me, I'm... God doesn't love me. We say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Not my experience, 
Not the fact that I'm doing well in the world. God's people are very often an afflicted people. Now what do we say to the Christian in Vietnam who is suffering arrest and persecution for the sake of the gospel? We say to them, well done. Keep on believing in Jesus. We don't say to them, well you know if you're suffering there's something wrong with you. There's a great comforting understanding that the end is God's glory. And yes, eventually, in the new heavens and earth, there'll be no sighing, no suffering, no crying, no death. But that's all in the world to come. In the present age. In the present age, we will have tribulation. Jesus said so. But that glorifies God. There's a a passage in John's Gospel. John chapter 21. And Jesus having spoken to Peter, speaking to Peter, says, verse 18, Most assuredly I say to you, when you were younger you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he, this is Jesus of course, spoke signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. Peter's death as a martyr glorified God. The martyr's death glorifies God. And so the martyr goes joyfully to to some extent, to the scaffold, to die, knowing that by doing so they are bearing witness that God is true. And so we have this proper perspective. We don't seek suffering, but our faith overcomes it, knowing that all things work together for good to them that love God. To good, no, not to present temporal comfort, but for good to them that love God, who are called according to his purpose. And what we do, in everything we do, we should seek the glory of God. Whatever you do, the apostle says, do it all for the glory of God. Because that's what you're a Christian for. That's what you're here for, to glorify God. Now, ultimately, of course, everybody will glorify God in some way. But the damned will glorify God against their will. But the Christian glorifies God willingly. We seek to glorify God. Those who crucified the Lord Jesus they set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed and yet they glorified God because Christ's death was a glorious death a saving death for all who believe we glory in the cross we come round this table because we glory in the cross But they didn't seek God's glory when they crucified Christ. They sought their own. 
But we as Christians, we seek God's glory that everything we do is for him and to him. Because only he is worthy. God's salvation isn't about how great we are. But we are about how great he is. Because he is great. And so it is all about God's glory. The glory of God, who he is in himself. That we are to seek, that we do seek to to show to other people. To show them how great God is. Because showing God's glory is the only worthy goal of anything, of anyone, is to show the glory of the one who created us. And if we are Christians, the one who has saved us, who has delivered us, who has redeemed us, and it needs the grace of God The work of the Spirit within for us to do that. Not only when we feel like it, but when we don't. Not only when everything's going well, but when it's not going well. To live for his glory and his praise. May God grant us then the grace to do that. To give glory to God alone. Amen. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.